0: Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past, be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek, Saqib who, by the way, he landed Yvonne Lendl, Brought him to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. If you haven't listened yet to that episode, Sakib with Yvonne Lendl, you owe it to yourself to do that. Uh, our, our best and biggest get, Sakib's best and biggest get, I should say, uh, a really a, a very satisfying moment for Sakib and the podcast that he founded several years ago. So please find, be sure to listen to Sakib with Yvonne Lendl. Uh, but Sakib is, is busy. He's He's going to be he's producing this podcast, but I'm very pleased uh, to review the WTA finals and Paris Bercy with uh, a frequent guest here. We always love having him back. Skip Schwartzman uh, offering uh, his expert analysis and, and his insights on the tours and tennis governance. And, you know, it is unfortunate that when we cover the tours, that tennis governance, uh, tennis administration still has to uh, emerge as an issue. like. We don't enjoy talking about it, not at all. We'd love to just talk about tennis, but governing and administrative issues do continue to be a problem. It gets in the way of our enjoyment of this wonderful sport, but we have to talk about it, right? Because That's part of the story. It certainly became part of the story at both events in Cancun and in Paris this past week. So we're going to talk tennis for sure, but we're also going to talk about the off-court stuff as well with Skip Schwartzman. So Skip as we welcome you back, you know, you've been taking notes, you followed these events, um a lot to keep track of. Let's start in Cancun with the WTA finals since that's the end of the WTA season. Iga Swiatek making a very loud statement. And uh we'll get to the playing conditions and and you know, Steve Simon being out to lunch and not really, not seemingly steering the ship of the WTA uh, with any kind of leadership presence. At all, we're definitely going to get to that. But first, uh some observations on some of the matches that you watched from the week, uh, particularly involving the WTA Finals newly minted champion Iga Shviantek, uh against Vondrosova, against Sabalenka, and then of course she pounded Jessica Pegula in the final. Your notes on Iga Swiatek as you saw her move uh, very smoothly through the draw in Cancun.
1: Sure. And thanks for having me, Saqib and Matt. Uh, I appreciate being asked. And before I start talking about these tournaments, I want to echo Matt's encouraging our listeners to listen to Saqib's interview with Ivan Lendl. It was really top shelf, Just, just great. It was so good that when I listened to it, I immediately called Sokka. We don't live near each other. We live near each other across the country, but we don't live in the same town. I called him uh, directly to tell him how great it was. So I, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, in terms of the tennis, I, I thought uh, Cancun, the matches were overall a, a testament to Iga Shantek as a player but also Igor Svantec's style of play as a model for modern tennis, probably to a great degree. She simply has, for one thing, I, I watched her during the Ivan match. And one of my notes was just that her footwork was just incredible in the wind, but in the windy conditions that they had, the ability to hit with as much spin as she does is an incalculable advantage. Andrusova certainly hits with spin, but her spins tend to be more varied as opposed to all top spin. And I don't think it's accidental that Shantek comes through the way she did, came through the way she did, with the amount of spin that she puts on the ball. There was a graphic in the final yesterday, and I'll jump ahead in terms of the match play because the graphic itself had nothing to do with that, but in the final yesterday against Pagula, the graphic was that RPMs on the forehand for Pagula were 1,373, 1,373 RPMs, and for Svantec, 2,855. That's twice as many RPMs. That that's an incredible difference. And if you listened during the match, or if you watch it on tape, it you can hear the difference. The ball simply sounds different off of Sviantec's racket than it does off Pagula's, off of same thing with Savalenka for that matter. On the backhand, Pagula is hitting at twelve hundred and sixty two RPMs, and Sviantec is at two thousand twenty-two. So the difference is not as great but it is more than 50% more RPMs. That's a big difference. And it lends a tremendous margin of error to her shot making that the other players don't have. That is just just the the plain fact of the matter. it's, it's, It's X's and O's come after that. If you can hit the ball back one, we all know that if you hit the ball back one more time than the other player, irrespective of how you hit it, you win the point. If you extrapolate from that and you, and say, I know that I can get the ball back more often than you can because I have this greater margin for error, then the confidence that it affords you and the tactical advantages that it affords a player are just, as I said, incalculable. And it was obvious for Pagula yesterday and Sabalenka in the semifinal. The way they're going to win points is they have to pierce Svantec's ability to keep getting the ball in play. And for both of them, especially Pagulo, who perhaps doesn't hit quite as hard as Sabalenka, quite as fast as, as Sabalenka or quite as heavy, it means that they have to lower their margin up for error. They need to hit the ball lower over the net. They need to hit the ball closer to the line. And that's not to say that Svantec just pushes the ball back because she doesn't, but she has this foundation of knowing that she can keep the ball in play more easily than her opponents. And that's a tremendous advantage. And that frees her to then be more assertive in so many of the points. So that, would, that I would say would be my overall bird's eye view.
0: And when we talk about RPM generation and, and being able to get, you know, that the, the kind of advantage that Svantec was able to establish – what goes into that i mean you you know about tennis technique and tennis coaching is that about taking like those little baby steps uh before you get to a shot is it about uh you know just how, how overall form and 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 your your how you flow through a shot when you hit it like when the ball gets into your strike zone or or maybe when a ball isn't in your strike zone but you're able to adjust and you know hit the ball at a different height and you're able to find a level of technique that generates uh, a certain consistency what 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 from your view goes into being able to generate the the greater rpms that Fiontech does?
1: I think at the most basic level, it's a matter of racket head speed, which of course gets discussed all the time. The faster your racket can come through the contact with the ball, which is really nanoseconds and deliver the glancing blow that creates spin, whether it's topspin or or underspin, but in this case, topspin, I don't know if Sriantec hits seven underspin balls a week. Um, The faster your racket can come through, the more RPMs you deliver to the ball, the faster the ball spins. The way topspin works is that the ball's rotating in the over the top, rotating in the direction of travel, the ball's travel, it creates air pressure at the front, at the leading edge of the ball, at the top and leading edge. That air pressure makes the ball come down faster. The more RPMs, the more pressure is created. The more pressure is created, the faster the ball drops. It also makes it rebound more actively. But the biggest thing is that it drops. So at the baseline it basically it essentially comes down to the faster i swing at the ball it's not lowering the chances of the ball coming in it's increasing the chances of the ball coming in so the number one thing is racket head speed how fast can i get the racket to move through the contact what pres- what facilitates that are a combination of things obviously your swing path the uh, traditional low to high type swing, which is facilitated even further by uh, grips ranging from semi-Western to so much Western that you might as well call it a Pacific grip, uh, Coco golf, for instance. And the more extreme the grip is towards a Western grip, the easier it is to, to create that spin with racket head speed because essentially today with the rackets providing so much power, you don't need to go through the ball the way you had to with wood, let's say, or aluminum rackets because the racket provides power in a way that those frames didn't. So the power is there. It's not inaccessible. It's very accessible. So then you can count on just, you can concentrate on just racket head speed in order to give you the RPMs that you're looking for and, and grip. And then more specific, more granularly or minutely it's footwork. To get in position to do that all the time. Very often, when you see someone hitting the, a forehand where the racket is finishing in that kind of bolo behind the head finish, it has more to do with the fact that they're maybe a little bit late or not quite as set up as they would like to be, where the, you see them, all of the players, go through the ball more. But they, if they're being pushed back, the finishing behind their head is a way of compensating for them not being able to go through the ball as much. So it still comes down to how do I create this racket head speed such that I'm brushing up the back of the ball and the footwork, the more you can get yourself set up to come through it, the heavier you can hit the ball all the time. And not just with the spin, but also with the weight of shot or speed behind it. That, it really Svantec is head and shoulders above everybody else. I thought that it would have been fascinating to see her play Ash Barty. I mean, I'm not the first person to say that, but I think Barty, had the tools to, to counter much of what Srianthek does theoretically, as well as the match savvy to be able to do it. Point construction savvy, and she had many of the same advantages or or, or talents or herself. Uh, not the least of which are wheels. By the way, it, it, it'd be all great if you could hit the ball if you, if the ball was always hit to you it would be it would be a very different game you have to be able to get to it and Shiontek is just tremendous at that so it's basically racket it, it, it comes down to racket head speed and then everything you can do to facilitate that
0: one more thing on Shiontek before we talk about the, the the mess in Cancun uh this past week um you know at Wimbledon when she lost crashed out of the tournament Shiontek was making a lot of errors and they were errors born of or connected to impatience. You know, and Svantec has this huge game. She does hit the ball so big. Um, she, she, you know, she, her, the ball, as you said, the ball flies off her racket in a way that's different from most of her other competitors. You know, she hits a, she hits a ball. That's just different. Um And so, you know, Shviantech knows this. She knows she has lightning in her hands. And when you're, when you're that potent a hitter, uh, it's also similar with Alcaraz, like they're just such electric hitters when they're on. But when they're off, you know, being patient and being willing to hit a few extra balls, uh, you know, allow a rally to play itself out and wait for a spot when you can hit, you know, a high margin shot to a safe target. And you can still carry the weight of the rally and overwhelm your opponent. Um, you know, that, that like Shriantek knows how to do that on clay. It's still a struggle for her on grass. Uh, it was not a struggle for her uh, on hard courts. You know, do you think that Sviontek learned anything in the second half of this 2023 season in terms of you know, hey, I know I have the electric game, but I, I need to be patient. I need to play with margin and just trust that my my margins hitting to safe targets. That's going to be better than my opponents are going to be able to do because I have the bigger game uh in my hands. Do you think that there was a the light went on uh in Cancun for Šviantech, or is this just kind of a constant process and there were ebbs and flows this season and Sviantech, you know, had it, lost it, got it back, or do you think that something new was apparent in what Shviantech did this past week?
1: I'm not sure that there's something new it's more like, as you suggest, something that was refound. Her having better season post-Wimbledon may well be court-related, court-surface-related. She won the French. So I think part of it is that her game is not as well-suited to grass and the reason it's not as well suited means that some of the players who play a more piercing game find that some of their shot their shots gain in aggressiveness. The same shot is more difficult. The ball doesn't bounce up as high. It tends to come through faster. And so shots from players who hit a flatter ball gain in value on a grass court or a oh, fast hard court where I think she's also not had great success. When the court gets slower, she has more time to produce her shots. She also doesn't like to come in. It was interesting yesterday, watching that match, how easily she would, you know, move up to not even three quarters court, let's say two thirds of the court and hit a ball and then retreat far more of a clay mentality than a hard court and certainly not a grass court mentality where you would come in. And I think that her net game is fine, but it's not, but she, she's not someone that you would look at and say, Oh, this is a, this person is a natural volley or why aren't they up, up at the net more often? So I, I think part of it is that the change in the courts at Post Wimbledon suited her. I also think that she, she's something of a hothouse flower. You, what I seem to see, and this is me completely reading between the lines because I have no inside knowledge. But when she seemed somewhat lost at sea this year, it seemed more of a confidence thing than anything else. Like she just didn't have single-minded purpose. And when she lost the plot in a match, she seemed discombobulated. You know, how, how am I supposed to win if I'm not winning love and one? That's it. Very reductive thing to say because she clearly does know how to win. You don't get to where she is if if you're only content or happy or able to win if you're winning one in one or one in love. But there there seemed to be a discomfort that she doesn't have or that she didn't ex- exhibit, for instance, in Cancun and at, at her most uh, potent when she really seems focused. And what did that come from? Now, I I think that we we never really know. I think there's been a lot of talk that I would give credence to that losing the number one position uh, kind of pulled the rug out from underneath her feet a little bit. She wasn't quite sure how to react to that or how she felt about it. Again, this is really very much from a distance, but but it wouldn't be the first time a player had to figure out how to be number two or more specifically, let's say, when she was number one, it's really when she was number one that she had the, uh, the wobbles, I think, and then fell to number two. And that all of a sudden becoming number two, I think this was, uh, who was saying this uh, maybe it was Lindsay Davenport this week that all of a sudden being bumped from number one to number two did give her a greater sense of clarity about what it was that she had to do. Whereas before she, only had a target on the back. There was no there was there was no reaching up to beat somebody else. It was just having a target on your back. And it's a very different position to to operate in, not having any more heights to reach, but only to shake everyone off of your ankles. So I, I don't think I don't know that she's become more patient. I think she's a very patient player in general. I just think she's very assertive. The problem is that if she's not feeling the ball very well because she's not clear of mind, then She's going to make she's going to make errors because she's not as focused in the product in her production, and she doesn't really have a, a lot of arrows in her quill. It's not like she's not all of a sudden I'm going to go out there and start hitting slice forehands and playing rinketing ding tennis in order to upset somebody's rhythm. That's just not what she's going to do. So her alternatives when she's not on are not very great. I think they're greater than some other players. But she's not what you would call a, a, she's she's not uh, Owens Jabur, for instance, in terms of how she would construct would, would choose to construct points. So I, I think it's more refound than anything new for her. She just she just found her way back to be to feeling her oats.
0: All right, let's talk about the mess in Cancun, and I think a lot. I think a, a question that a lot of fans have about all of this and you know with the complaints and and just the 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 total lack of organization from the wta side uh, a natural question a lot of fans will have is you know why did why use this you know uh experimental venue you know having to set up a court at a place that isn't a regular tour stop like why couldn't you just have this at madison square garden you know where the year-end WTA tournament used to be uh, for quite a long time, was very successful, had had plenty of memorable uh, matches uh, in, in past decades. Why not use an, another established tour venue where you don't have to worry about setting up the court? You don't have to worry about the conditions, the quality of bounce, uh, the safety of the players. Why the felt need to have to go to a, a new out-of-the-way play? Like Guadalajara's w- was used as a site uh, in recent years. I think that's a question a lot of fans have on their minds.
1: Yeah, I and I think it's a very legitimate one. I don't know all of the behind-the-closed-door secrets, but it's pretty clear that the WTA doesn't have its choice of venues according to simply what they want. Madison Square Garden. Aside from any scheduling issues, and I, I I don't know that there were scheduling issues with Madison Square Garden or not, but these things, in order to get venues like that, the the contracts need to be set up way ahead of time. Yep. Uh, so if you're looking at the garden, for instance, Madison, Madison Square Garden, you know you have basketball to contend with, you have I believe hockey to contend with, and and other events happening at the garden, and to take it over for a week means that if the week is available, you have to commit early. That's number one. Number two, the cost of going to Madison square garden is going to be much greater than going to Cancun. And the WTA simply not, simply doesn't have that, those kinds of deep pockets, you know, witness the ongoing uh, battle between the Czech Republic and Saudi Arabia for where the, Finals are are to be played for a contractual number of years that's going on right now. It's really the, the, the WTA or the WTA is returning to China. The WTA simply doesn't have the deep pockets that allow it the ability to say, oh, you know what? We would like to be at Madison Square Garden. We would like to be at the Meadowlands. We would like to be at, you know, name another uh, venue that would provide them the Pluses that, that you mentioned. And by the way, I have to say that one of the pluses should be a roof if you're playing in an area that is potentially going to be affected by rain because of this time of year. Not having a, I mean, if the court surface wasn't great in Cancun and they didn't have notice of when it, where it was going to be until, I don't think they knew until up until six weeks before the tournament. If If it's not close to where the Billie Jean King Cup finals are being played, which is the case and also a problem. If all those things were true, but they had a roof, at least the, their schedule would not have been so discombobulated. And I think I just managed to use that word twice this podcast, but their, their schedule would not have been so discombobulated by the rain. It was ridiculous. It was embarrassing. The, 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 the number one women's sport in the world, is being upset by all of this rain, and they have, they're have they taking care of it by having scads of ball kids out on the court drying it with towels. It was not what you would call the best look for the WTA. And it's not because I think that no one cares of the WTA. I do think that their hands are somewhat tied by virtue of how much money they have to throw it, making these things better. But part of it's also decision-making. At some point, it seems to me, Steve Simon and the WTA needed to bite the bullet, decide on a venue way earlier than they did on Cancun and to take those other things into consideration, like how are we protected against the weather? How big can the stadium be, et cetera, et cetera, rather than waiting and waiting and waiting to try and get potentially a better deal, which is what I assume happened. I mean, the reason to wait is that you're looking to get the best deal. I could be wrong there, but that's my assumption. And just, just bite the bullet earlier on and forge a deal and go forward to make the best of it from there. It was not a good look for the WTA compounded by the weak statement that Steve Simon provided to John Wertheim over the WTA players, letters to the WTA management over their their requests slash demands for changes and how the tour's being run. Uh, not a good time for it to happen and only exacerbated by the weakness of the optics that came about by their being in Cancun. I think they need money.
0: Yeah. So, you know, tennis fans, tennis commentators, I don't think anyone in the tennis community has a lot of confidence that the WTA is going to fix these fundamental problems. So I'm not going to say I'm not going to ask you what needs to happen. I'm going to say, you know, what do you how do you see the politics of all of this shifting? Um, not so much in terms of what the WTA needs to do, as you've kind of outlined a number of things that the WTA needs to do. It's more about what kind of events, what kind of developments in 2024 or beyond might change the political temperature in the room such that the, the there might be a new urgency on the wta to act you know what what are the kinds of things that might create uh, a different and higher level of political pressure political urgency that could shake this thing loose you know again not predicting that things are going to get fixed but what are the kinds of things as you see or sense them that might Change the political dynamic of all of this?
1: I appreciate your asking me, but I think it's something that really needs to be answered by somebody who's got more c- connections to behind the door what's going on to give a, a, a really meaningful answer. From my distance, I would say the biggest thing that's hampering the WTA is lack of money. They simply don't have the freedom to make decisions without what is it going to cost us being at the top of their list. And as long as that's the case, we're going to continue to see a disjointedness between what would be best and what we get, what the players want and what they get. And by the way, I'm not sure that guaranteed income, which the players have asked for, is as easily accomplished as they're Request would make it seem. But it seems to me that money is the biggest issue. And it's, uh, I'm saying that because I'm uh, reverse engineering the answer. They went back to China after uh, Peng Shui and after taking a very principled and appropriate stance, in my opinion, about not engaging with China as long as they couldn't get. Reasonable answers about Peng Shui's safety, et cetera. Um, and they're talking to Saudi Arabia about the year-end championships. How in the world the WTA that has its history of promoting women's, uh, promoting equal opportunity for women and equal rights for women can then say that they're going to do business in Saudi Arabia, which in the best of times is not a, a a torchbearer for human rights, let alone women's rights, is just, it just leaves you astounded. I don't, and it, if it's, and it has to be about money. So that's why I'm saying I'm reverse engineering the answer. The best
0: the, Sure. Let me know. step in. Let me step in with a sure. money focused question. Sure. Would um, the women going to best of five set major finals, uh, and, and would the merging of the two tours be legitimate, uh, considerations in terms of addressing this money problem, uh, and, and of those two would one make a whole lot more sense than the other should both be done. How would you, uh, approach those two things in terms of, you know, finding ways to increase the television and overall value of the women's tennis product as it is?
1: I think there's, there are studies showing, which I can't cite, but I've read about them. No, I have not read them, that the tournaments tournaments generally do better when there are uh, both tours on site. So that's at the top of it. That has to be the, the overarching, the, the premise on which you base this conversation. As is so often the case, the, the, the devil's in the details. If you have a 62 draw, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, if you have a 64 draw, and you now have a men's and a women's tournament, you now need courts for 120, for basically, a, you know, double tournament, you need more courts. If you have a 32, it doesn't matter what the size of the tournament is. If you now have both a men's and women's tournament on site, you need more courts and or you need more time. That starts becoming a limiting factor. It clearly, I believe the numbers are such that it's more attractive for television, and that's where the real money is, because the money's not really in the gate. So there's an advantage there. But those things, however, need to be worked out. And in terms of the venues that manage in that site, it's my feeling that the tennis in general is suffering from larger and larger events because it's making it impossible for people in secondary markets to see tennis because very few of those secondary markets can handle the larger tournaments uh the 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 1000 level tournaments <laughs> that are crowding out the smaller ones it's a little bit tangential my understanding is that the ATP that there are many players in the ATP who are uh, aver who, who who are in opposition to merging the tours because they believe that the WTA can't carry its weight financially or in terms of is attracting sponsors who, of course, bring money. I think there's probably truth to that. If you look at the WTA it just doesn't get the same sponsorship as the ATP. It's just a fact. We can discuss why, but, as a, but right now it's a fact. In terms of best of five, I'm a big proponent of best of five. If I were made commissioner of tennis, what would be my solution regarding best of five would be that in larger, in the in, in all the 1,000 level tournaments, men's and women's, and the big four tournaments, uh, and Davis Cup and Billie Jean King Cup. Of course, they're all overseen by different entities. But for me, I would say the first week is best of three. It helps with scheduling, and it assists with television issues. The second week say from the fourth round or quarters on is best of five. You now have a day off in between matches. You don't have the same kind of debilitating effect on the winner of a long drawn out match. You have players now able to get enough experience playing best of five matches that they understand how to do it, as opposed to they're doing it once, four times a year and the numbers for how many matches actually go four sets, let alone five, is not overwhelming. So the players don't get it. it, The contention that best of five is too debilitating physically, overall, is fallacious. Because most players aren't playing five sets. When I ran the numbers for, I think, 2016, the number of matches that actually went to four sets was just not that impressive. So it's not as if players went by playing best of five are playing twice as much tennis per, per match they're just not and of course if they had less experience getting to play 5 of set, 5 best of 5 then they're not going to be as good at it and i also think that tennis has always been known was always known as an endurance sport and re- eliminating best of 5 kind of eliminates that and lastly i think best of 5 has an ebb and flow that best of 3 just never rarely does and that ebb and flow is is fascinating. I will admit that it has some problems. You know, not everybody wants to read a novel. A lot of people just want to, want to read a soundbite. And the best of five it's, has the potential of being more novelistic. But I still think that it brings something to the sporting, to, to, to a spectator's enjoyment that best of three is not available. So that would be my answer for best of five. Whether it would help the women or not in terms of generating money, I'm not so sure about that. But I think tennis overall would benefit.
0: All right. Let's shift to the ATP and and Paris Bercy. So you know, and, and one of the things about Bercy, uh, that has generally been one of the faster uh playing surfaces uh on on the ATP tour, and it brings up a discussion about the speed of, of courts. Like that as something always worth revisiting near the end of another uh, tennis season so what were the particular observations you came away with i know you ha- i know you had some observations about cancun as well uh, but we can integrate that with what you saw in bercy and and how the sport of tennis is covered analyzed how data is gathered how um, predictions are made for for matches how we assess matchups based on the speed of services i know that you're you were taking a lot of notes this past week
1: sure um Regarding the court speed, during the dimitrov Tsitsipas match, Courier Jim Courier said something about the court speed. And I was thinking, finally, someone is talking about it. And he was saying that the courts are faster than last year, and he's calling for more quicker courts. I agree with him. Bercy, uh, years ago when Mikhail Lodra uh, made the final against... Mm, that's, I'm dropping who this is. Uh, yeah, it was... It doesn't matter. But Mikhail Lodra had a a great run towards somewhat near the end of his career. The courts were faster than usual. And the tennis that week was great. The tennis this week has been great. The fact that it was a quicker court did not diminish the quality of the tennis at all. If anything, I think we can make the claim that Dimitrov made it through the finals in part because of the quicker courts. Because, as I said before, regarding Svantec being at Wimbledon, the quicker court takes a an assertive shot and increases its value because the ball comes through faster. So a shot that maybe an opponent is going to get to and throw up a lob or hit a passing shot all of a sudden becomes a point-finishing shot. Whether it's an outright winner or not, it's not really relevant. It simply is a point-finishing shot. That on a slower court... It gets retrieved. And we had great matches this week. And I think you can make the claim that Dimitrov, who you know, found the sweet spot for his game this week, is he's not playing this well, this consistently all the time. But the court lent itself to his game style. and you know, Unfortunately, he came up against Djokovic in the end. So I would be a, a big fan. I'm a big fan of there being more quick courts, on tour they don't have to all be quick courts but a, an increase in the number of quick courts would not only give us greater variety of in match plays that we watch but i think that it would also promote players who otherwise don't make it into our view because they are more aggressive players, slower courts, especially the really slow courts, discourage them as young players, and we don't see them hit hitting the tour or the tours because they just can't. They can't succeed on I'll be too extreme on really slow clay courts. They simply can't succeed. So that, to me, is a, it, it. It basically gives us. A way to promote a style of play that is otherwise uh, devalued by, by slower courts. I, I want to write something because when I was when I was watching this and, and reading and hearing Courier talk about the courts beat and stuff, I want to read something to you that I wrote in in 2012 about going to the US Open. So This is from 2012. I purposely went to watch Benoit Pair pay Grigor Dimitrov in a battle of young shot makers. I walked away after only a set, wondering how they could hit the ball so well yet not understand how to play the game. Both of them didn't construct points so much as attempt to play fantabulous shots whenever possible. More often than not, it wasn't possible. The most fundamental of tennis concepts, that of simply being the last guy to get the ball in play in any point, in any manner, was completely foreign to both of them. So that's from 2012. Benoit Paire didn't really move much beyond that. Fabulous as he could be to watch. Dimitrov, however, in his, uh, it's not quite his dotage, but uh, at this stage of his career, does seem to have learned that to a great degree. Uh, you know, his results in Bercy were not, I mean, he's he's been doing well for the past few months. Of course, it is also a time of year that, that's going to favor him because the courts do tend to be a little bit quicker. It's more indoors that favors his game. But, He seems to have learned that. He's not quite as quick to pull the trigger as he used to be, and he's using more slice backhands to set up the rest of his game, which which is great. I think tennis would definitely benefit from more quick courts. I think we'd see more contrast. It was said years ago that one of the worst matchups to see was watching Djokovic play Murray because they both played such a similar game. And if you think about the great rivalries in the sport, generally speaking, they were contrasting players. Everett Average Lover, Sampras, Agassi, Federer and Nadal. I mean, these things featured contrast. The more the game works towards homogenizing itself, whether it's intentional or not, the less we're going to get of that. So I'd i would I'd be a big fan of seeing quicker courts. Having said that, you see what happens when Djokovic and when Dimitrov comes up against Djokovic. I mean, he just he can't pierce Djokovic's ability to get one more ball in play. And that's Like I said about Sviantek, I'm not trying to suggest that all Novak does is push the ball back in play. Clearly, he does far more than that. But his knowing that he can get so many balls back than the other player lets him be more free on other points when when he has something. And he has raised it. I mean, he's far more assertive than Sviantek overall. But it's still just you, you, you in a racket sport, the last ball in play gets wins the day. That's that's just a fact. And somebody like Dimitrov, they have to really be hitting their spots and not missing when an opportunity comes up in order to get through somebody like Djokovic. And it's tough, even the court, even with the court helping. So good for him, great result. I hope he does it even better. But it's it, it's a tough it's, it's a tough road. To Ho, and and I'll also say that you know one of the some of the comments that were made about. Dimitrov earlier in the week was how heroic and and swashbuckling his game was. And I I'll suggest that that being very true, it also is not the kind of adjectives that you use for someone who demonstrates a lot of consistency or who has a great margin for error. So, you know, it's heroic, but, you know, heroism only gets to raise its head every so often. It's not really... It's it's not in the tortoise and the hare. It's it's not it's not the tortoise.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Novak Djokovic, the Bursi champion. And, you know, one thing you mentioned was that, you know, Dimitrov might have had a surface which was more suited to his playing style, but he ran up against Djokovic. And that brings up the larger point that slow hard court, fast hard court, you know, Djokovic seems to be a guy, not, not seems to, pardon me, he is a guy who transcends speed of court you know he has a solution for pretty much every situation his overall quality his mastery of the sport and its nuances it transcends specific surfaces i mean you know he uh has won multiple times at, at each of the uh the four majors um you know obviously his dominance of the full series of all nine uh, 1,000-point tournaments. You know, his Masters Trophy collection continues to rise. I mean, he has an answer for everything, and how would you uh evaluate what you saw from him and some of the matches that he played over the past week in Burson? In
1: I don't know how you could, could argue that he's the greatest player of all time. It's He's not my favorite player of all time, personally. I think a case can be made for other players being better players at their best. But when you look at his, his record, it's just, it, it it's, you just walk away gobsmacked. I mean, every thousand level tournament twice plus the hall of big four titles, Davis cup. It, it's just, it, it's astounding. It's absolutely astounding. Consequently, in some ways, you, you, it's not surprising that he wins, that he's won. Look, it's surprising that he's winning at what was he thirty seven at this point, thirty uh, six. That's pretty astounding. It, but he's he's just this is this is this is the opinion of somebody who grew up idolizing labor, who knew about the players who came before Rod Laver, who you know, saw Sampras plenty of times and adored Federer. It's I'm not coming to this statement as somebody who is a rabid Djokovic fanboy. Not that there's anything wrong with being that, but that's not me. But it's just, it's, I'm about as dispassionate a person as you're going to get in this discussion, and he's just astounding. So – when you see him take this match against Dimitrov and win this week on courts that, no, I think, I don't know that they're, they're, they're not his worst surface. I don't know what surface you would say is his worst. Uh, You might say there's a surface where he might be more vulnerable than on others. That might be grass or on a really fast, hard court, but you certainly can't say that a hard court in general is a bad surface for him. I mean, he's just, He's just astounding. Really, the only only thing I can say that you can do against Djokovic is you have to draw him in and give him overheads because his his overhead is so otherworldly in a bad way from the rest of his game that it's hard to reconcile that it's the same player. And and even then, his overhead's gotten better. It's a testament to his diligence that he's improved his net play the way he has and improved his overhead. It it, it is astounding. I, I will also say that... I do think that similar to that I I made the negative comment about his pacing during matches, which I I think is ridiculous. He gets away with a lot. He pushes the shot clock and over the shot clock and they let him get away with it. He, He, it's, it really does border on gamesmanship that should have something said about it, but it's not the only place where you get to see it. Because I will also say that to go back to Cancun in the, doubles semi-final. The team went off before the match tiebreak. They split sets. They go off during the match tiebreak. And then they come back out for, to play a 10-point tiebreaker. That's just ridiculous. That should be banned. You, sh- If you're playing a match tiebreak, I don't care whether it's men's or women's doubles, men's or women's matches, If you know you, you get to a match tiebreak where you wouldn't play a match tiebreak in, in lieu of a set in the singles. but there's no way you should be able to walk off at the end of a set before you're going to play a 10-point tiebreak. If tennis wants to promote itself, that is about – that's that's. I don't know if it's the worst thing that it could possibly do, but it sure as hell doesn't help. It's just silly. And then watching the semifinal, again, this was a Cancun, there was more talk than play. If I had had a stopwatch <clears> – <throat> excuse me – if I had had a stopwatch and timed how long the ball was in play versus how long was taken on – between points, talking to each other, the doubles partners talking to each other, it was just ridiculous. If tennis doesn't address those things and yet wants to see itself broadcast more, <laughs> it, they're not going to be successful. It just—I mean, I, I'm one—I'm I'm one for best of five sets, but if they're played like that, it's—it's it, it's, the pace is going to be glacial. It, it is ridiculous, and it's habit. It, it is nothing more than habit. Players learn that they can do it, so they do it because, quite honestly, it saves calories. So they do it. But if you tell them they can't do it, then they'll figure out another way to play. It's like when uh, 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 um, Verdasco was told something about the, the shot clock years ago in Australia, and he said, we can't play a point like that. And then play the next point in twenty five seconds. Well, the answer to that is then learn to not play points like that, where you have to hit the ball forty times and run run all over God's green earth. You are going to have to learn to end points, and that's what they would do. They, they, they've they have adapted to the rules that we give them in, in this case, and it's not that there shouldn't be consideration for the physicality of the game. But I mean, th- this doubles match in Cancun was just boy, it was painful to watch, really painful. And I think that Djokovic does the same thing with his pacing. It's just ridiculous that the way he, he – I saw him against Davidovich Fokina in Paris this year. It was – you wanted to take a nap in between points when he was serving. But he's the greatest player of ever. There's no doubt about that.
0: The rules you know, of the game leads us to another uh, tennis uh, governance conversation that we'll have to shelve for another day because uh, we – uh We've, we've certainly talked about that to a certain degree here, and also uh, the the WTA Finals, harris Bercy on the road to uh, the ATP Finals. Uh, lots of good stuff, Skip, as always. Skip Schwartzman, uh, who frequently visits the Tennis with an Accent podcast, give his insights on the tours and everything else in between. Skip Schwartzman, thanks for coming back and no, thanks, Thank, Thanks, thanks for letting me pontificate,
1: Matt and Saka. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure.